Hello, Podrishners. We hear on a regular basis from people in our extended internet Woodland Hills community uh, the need to feel more connected uh, with uh, the ministry here. Um, we have a number of people, an increasing number of people, who are starting house churches or holding Bible studies uh, on, that are centered on the teachings of, of this ministry, and they feel the need to be more in touch with what one person referred to as the mothership. Some of the stories of these parishioners are moving and humbling. For example, a couple days ago, I just got an email from uh, a couple in Yemen who are ministering to Muslims in a pretty hostile environment. In fact, they recently had three of their converts uh, arrested. And I'd like you to pray for those folks that they'd be quickly released. And this, this dear couple emailed us just to ask us to pray for these folks and also to express their gratitude for us podcasting the messages, telling us what a source of strength and encouragement they are to their ministry. And I can't tell you how humbling it is uh, to know that we're making a difference to folks, radical disciples like this on the other side of the globe. It's just, it's just beautiful. But they, like so many others, could really benefit from feeling more connected to the mothership. And so we're in the process of redeveloping our website and looking at a number of possibilities uh, to help create this sense of community among those who are podcasters. And so pray for us as we move forward in uh, this endeavor. We also have heard over the last several years uh, people wondering how they can contribute financially to Woodland Hills Church when they're not here on the weekends when we take up an offering. And I'm happy to tell you that as of three weeks ago, uh, we have the capacity uh, to receive online donations. Now, if you've been a parishioner for any length of time, you know that we're, to- we're adamantly opposed to ever pressuring people to contribute to the ministry. Um, kingdom giving is supposed to be done out of love and joy, not out of guilt, shame, or manipulation or anything of the sort. Uh, our philosophy is that our job is to let the needs be known and then to ask people to simply seek God's will as to how they would steward God's resources because, after all, in the end, it all belongs to God. Now, the need we have here at Woodland Hills Church is this. Like so many other churches uh, during this time of economic crisis, we are significantly behind in our budget. And so if you feel so led, we could really use your support. Again, it's an honor to serve you, and I encourage you to live out the radical, beautiful, Jesus-looking kingdom 24-7. Live in love as Christ loved you and gave his life for you. God bless. Please welcome Pastor Sandra Unger. Thanks, Steve. I think... Thank you. Good to be here. Thanks for the warm welcome. All right, let's pray. God, thanks for this church and for the ministry it's had in my life and the lives of my family and friends. And we thank you that you're here with us today. And so in the midst of maybe our stress around the holidays, around our concerns about the economy, around the things that are going on deep in our heart that only you know... Um, We just thank you that you're here with us and for us. And I pray that we would hear a word from you. And I commit my words to you. And I pray that your spirit would use them in ways that probably I'll know nothing about. We know that your spirit's at work. We commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, anybody seen this? And did you go, ah, like I did? It's a little bit like being assaulted this time of year to walk through the malls. Uh, which I try to avoid at all costs. But it seems like every store you go in, there's an ad, a a picture, something on the wall that makes me as a follower of Jesus go, ah! The ad, for those of you listening on podcast, is from Best Buy, the big Best Buy tag. And then underneath, you, comma, happier. And so now we know that we can buy happiness at Best Buy. Is it just me? I don't want to over, overreact, but is this just a tiny bit alarming to anyone else? I mean, seriously. I know I have a reputation, and I promise that I'm not here to trash Chris, Christmas, but is, is Best Buy, this is my question, is Best Buy where we find happiness? This time of year is known as the season of giving. So we give parties, and we give gifts, and we give back, and we give so that we can get that end-of-the-year tax write-off, and we give fruitcakes and other interesting gifts, And apparently we can give happiness. It's right over there at Best Buy. And it's simple because it's the perfect gift for any occasion. Who doesn't want happiness? And who knew it was so easy to find? So anyway, we're in the middle of a giving frenzy, as we all well know. 
the original purpose of which I'm pretty sure was to honor Jesus on his birthday for the greatest gift that's ever been given. I think that was the original purpose. Am I right? Was that sort of how it started? That's why we give gifts is to honor Jesus. But I'm also pretty sure that most of the Christmas gift giving in America does not, in fact, honor Jesus. Now stay with me here. I'm pretty sure that much of it does not please Jesus. When we're running up our credit cards, buying things we don't need, I think we have missed the point. The truth is that giving at Christmas gives us permission to spend money that we don't have on things we don't need. It's become sort of a greedy consumer free-for-all, and this is supposed to honor Jesus. But we hide behind the excuse that comes once a year, but it's Christmas, this is what we do. We buy stuff, we buy happiness for one another, and, and iPods, which means that there's something insidious going on, I think, because we are in effect using Jesus as our excuse to consume and go into debt, and he does not want to be that excuse. Now, I'm not saying it's always the case. I'm not saying there can't be wonderful gifts given in love at this time of the year. I'm saying that it's too often the case. And I'm not saying that Christmas is bad. I'm saying we've done bad things to it. And the reason I say it's insidious is because I don't think that oftentimes we're even aware of it. We're so immersed in it, surrounded by it. It's so much what we do that we don't even realize what's going on. This is just what we do at Christmas. It's the American thing to do. And for crying out loud, it's the Christian thing to do. Jesus wants us to give. And you're saying, Sandra, what's your problem attacking Best Buy like this? Don't you know that Jesus wants us to give? And I agree that Jesus does want us to give. So today we're going to talk about giving. What does giving look like in the kingdom of God? What does generosity mean when you're a follower of Jesus? And I want to ask the question, how do those things look different? How does giving and how does generosity look different when you're a follower of Jesus versus when you're not a follower of Jesus? Do they look any different? Because I really believe that in the midst of a million ads telling us what's important and what will make us happy, that we can be different. We can step outside of all that mess and say, no, this is what we do as kingdom people. This is what we do. So we're going to talk about four things that characterize the giving of followers of Jesus Christ. Four things. And the first one is that people who love Jesus give all the time. It's who we are. It's what we do. It's a natural manifestation of having the Holy Spirit live inside of us. It's not just at Christmas. And so I'm not even preaching a Christmas sermon today. It's a year-round sermon. But I definitely think that this time of year, it's a sermon that we need to hear. Our lives as followers of Jesus are to be characterized by a radical generosity because this is what we do. My son, who I admit has been skewed by my warped perspective on the holidays, called me from college a little while ago and said, Mom, I heard an ad on the radio. It was horrifying. And I was so proud already. (laughs) It was a credit card ad, he said, and here's how it went. We are a nation of consumers. Dramatic pause. And there's nothing wrong with that. Ah, he said. Because actually there is something wrong with that and we're seeing the effects of it everywhere in our economy right now. Is it possible to be a radical consumer and a radical giver at the same time? Is it possible really that our economy right now and the place it's in is the direct result of unchecked greed and consumerism? It is true that we're a nation of consumers. But are we also a church of consumers? Are we modeling a countercultural way of life? Now, I know, for those of you who've been around, that I have have beaten this horse to death. Um, But we're still spending $450 billion on Christmas. So I'm going to try to impact at least a few thousand today. I know it's time to dismount, and I do have other things to say. But I just have to say a couple more things about this. What is it that's distinctively Christian about most Christians? What is it that's distinctively Christian about most Christians? What is it that makes people look at us and say, wow, they've chosen a different way. They've chosen a different path. I want that. The church that I was raised in, I've told you about that church before, it was lots of external things. So they would check to make sure the guy's hair did not touch the top of their ears because apparently 
That's what's supposed to be distinctively Christian. And you couldn't play cards and you couldn't dance. I'm not sure what David would do about that. There were lots and lots of rules about what Christians could not do and what it was that was supposed to make us distinct from the rest of the world. Another thing, women couldn't wear pants. Oh, but I was in Michigan and we were at a church where a whole bunch of people owned snowmobiles. And so I remember, you know, what are you going to do? Because you have to wear pants when you snowmobile. And I hope you don't take that quote out of context. <laughs> there, were people, there were people, I'm having so much fun with that one. There were people at our church who had a catalog of snowmobile gear. And in the catalog was a snowmobile dress. <laughs> this is what makes us Christians. Oh, oh, that man has short hair and she's wearing a snowmobile dress and they're not playing cards. Well, they must be Christians, right? Because it's easy, sort of, to wear a snowmobile dress and not play cards, but it's quite difficult to submit all of our money to Jesus. So let's go with the snowmobile dress, okay? If you can't be transformed, at least be weird. What should characterize followers of Jesus? One of the things is a radical, radical generosity, and that's difficult. Take a look at 1 Timothy 6. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And I just love that phrase, the life that is truly life. And I am afraid that we are missing out even as followers of Jesus. Followers of Jesus don't buy in to the message this time of year which says that life and happiness are found at Best Buy. Nope. Followers of Jesus are generous in ways that go far beyond what you can find at Best Buy. This is who we are. This is what we do. So the first thing is, followers of Jesus give all the time. Second, people who love Jesus give of themselves. In Philippians 2, we find just how much Jesus gave, verses 5 through 8. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus gave everything. And this is the message of the church, and we've heard it a million times. Besides the big gift of his life that he gave, his pattern was to give his time, his presence, his words, his wisdom, his encouragement, his power, his healing. And these are things you have to be up close to deliver. Things that are costly, things that don't line up maybe with a specific holiday, things that don't fit in a box. And it seems like if people, if Jesus was here and celebrated Christmas with us, that he would focus more on the people and not so much on the stuff. You ever heard the question asked, do we love people and use things, or do we love things and use people? Jesus loved people and had very little use for things. Do we love people and use things, or do we love things and use people? The way that we really love people is by being with them. And part of the other insidious part of the holiday is that by being so busy running around and buying stuff, we miss out on opportunities to be really present with people. There are so many ways we've messed up this holiday. It's harder than giving a gift sometimes to be people, to be with people. But the missionary to India, Amy Carmichael, had this to say. She said, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. You can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. And she wasn't talking about iPods. You can give gifts to people that you don't even like, that bug you. You can give gifts out of a resentful spirit. That's not the giving that we're talking about. When you truly love someone, the giving of yourselves naturally flows out. And as we learn to love people, that giving gets manifested in ways that are creative and different than just a box under the tree. They're modeled after the ways that Jesus loved and gave himself. So thinking about our time with family this Christmas, which I know can be difficult for many, 
Can we focus more on the time together and less on the shiny boxes and fruitcakes and iPods? Can we listen more than we talk? Can we affirm and encourage? Can we notice what's even going on? Who's in need? Who's struggling financially? Who's sad? Who's had a really rough year? Can we reach out even to the difficult and grouchy relative? People who follow Jesus give because they have been loved so well by him and they've received that love and it overflows into a profound love for all those around them even if they're difficult, if they're needy, if they're hurting, if they're struggling. That love is enough to overcome. This is what we do as kingdom people. We give all the time and we give of ourselves. Third, people who love Jesus give sacrificially until it really hurts. And again, this was modeled by Jesus. Do you ever suffer the pain in January when the Christmas bills start coming? Does anybody suffer then? And do we ever sort of secretly think, oh, I'm, I, I gave so well in honor of Jesus that I'm suffering? Because I would just like to say, that doesn't count. <laughs> That's not the sacrifice and hurt and pain that I'm talking about. Is this what we do as followers of Jesus? Greg spoke last week, for those of you who are here, about a warning, a prophetic warning that's been given about a black horse that's coming and represents economic woes, and we're already feeling that. And the ones woes we're having today are likely to get worse, everyone is saying. And his question last week was, are we prepared for that? Because the prophetic word was, be prepared, the black horse is coming. And preparation means that we prepare ahead of time. And so we want to be a place that can reach out and meet those needs of people who are hungry and struggling financially and with jobs and with housing. We want to be prepared for that. Are we ready as a community to make the sacrifices that might come as we have to open up our doors for people to stay with us, as we need to give a car away, share our food when money is tight for us, help people pay their rent, Are we ready to do those things? Because sometimes I think we're just ready to pray for those things. And praying is really, really, really important. But we know that oftentimes, and I would say usually, Jesus answers prayers through his people. And so isn't it a little ironic to think about, say you're in your small group or a group of friends and someone has lost their job and can't pay their rent. And so you all sit around and pray for the person to be able to pay their rent. I mean, okay, let's just step out of the culture we live in. Is that a little weird? What if the people in the group could help them pay their rent? Okay, so what prayer becomes is a handoff. Okay, so I can pray for you, and then that means I'm saying to God, tag, you're it. (laughs) It's your problem now. So yes, we pray for people. Of course we pray for people. But we want to be a part of the answer to the prayer, too. He answers prayer through us, but it's going to cost us something. And we really do need to be prepared to make the sacrifice to open our homes. What if you have an extra car lying around? Ouch! I mean, this stuff hurts. This is real sacrifice. And I want to know, is this what we do in the kingdom of God? If the economy continues to go south, government programs are not going to be able to keep up with the need. And as the people of God in the kingdom of God, I want us to be prepared to fill that gap. But I know some of you are saying, I have no margin. Because we know from statistics, from research, that most people in the United States, including people who follow Jesus, are living at the very end of their resources. There is no margin. There is no extra money to give to someone. And so we need to step back and ask, well, why is that? And so I've brought a video today that might help you evaluate and see maybe this is why you have no margin. Let's take a look. I just can't get these numbers to add up. It's like we're never going to get out of this hole. Credit card debt, does it ever end? (laughs) Maybe I can help. We sure could use it. We've tried debt consolidation companies. We've even taken out loans to help make payments. Well, you're not the only ones. Did you know millions of Americans live with debt they cannot control? That's why I developed this unique new program for managing your debt. It's called Don't Buy Stuff You Cannot Afford. (laughs) 
you don't have any money, you should not buy anything. Hmm, sounds interesting. Sounds confusing. I don't know, honey. This makes a lot of sense. There's a whole section here on how to buy expensive things using money you save. Give me that. And where would you get this saved money? I tell you where and how in Chapter 3. Okay, but what if I want something but I don't have any money? You don't buy it. Well, let's say I don't have enough money to buy something. Should I buy it anyway? No. Now I'm really confused. It's a little confusing at first. Well, what if you have the money? Can you buy something? Yes. Now take the money away. Same story? Nope. You shouldn't buy stuff when you don't have the money. I think I got it. I buy something I want and then hope that I can pay for it, right? <laughs> no. You make sure you have money, then you buy it. Oh, then you buy it. But shouldn't you buy it before you have the money? No. Why not? It's in the book. It's only one page long. <laughs> the advice is priceless and the book is free. Wow, I like the sound of that. Yeah, we can put it on our credit card. <laughs> So get out of debt now. Write for your free copy of Don't Buy Stuff You Cannot Afford. And if you order now, you also receive Seriously, If You Don't Have the Money, Don't Buy It, along with a 12-month subscription to Stop Buying Stuff magazine. So order today. It's really kind of simple. But here's the deal. In the Church of Jesus Christ, we haven't even mastered this part about don't buy stuff you cannot afford. But the actual question of the kingdom is, hey, even if you have the money, should you buy it? We want to be even more radical. We don't assume that just because we have the money, oh, good, well, now I can just run out and have a spend fest. No, the kingdom of God goes even beyond the Saturday Night Live skit and asks the question, even if you have the money, should you buy it? We are very limited in our ability to step in and meet a need if we're constantly outspending our resources. And really, it's the way we think about money that makes a big difference. Have you ever really asked yourself the question, why do I have money and what is it for? If the money is to hoard and to spend on ourselves, then anybody who needs something, anybody who is asking for food, anybody who needs help paying a rent is a threat to us if our money is to hoard and spend on ourselves. A person who needs groceries is a threat because then I might not be able to get that new pair of shoes. The person in our small group who can't pay rent is a threat to us. And we feel that deep inside. We don't say it out loud. Oh, you're making me nervous, you're a threat. How about if you leave? We don't get that gross about it. But inside, I know that feeling. Oh no, here comes a need and I don't want to meet it because I want new shoes. So what happens is we subconsciously and sometimes consciously distance ourselves from those in need, the very people that Jesus calls us to because they threaten our ability to spend our money on ourselves. So do you see how horrible that is for the kingdom of God, which is all about if I have two coats and you have none, here you go. In fact, after I preached last night, a staff person was in the lobby and there was a guy who was leaving who had no coat or gloves and he was like, oh, so he gave his coat and gloves away. We want to have not just a coat, we want to have a couple spares. We don't want to give stuff away. And so what happens is those people with needs are people that we distance ourselves from. And these are the people that Jesus has called us to. These are the people in Luke 4 who Jesus announced his ministry to. I've come to bring good news to the poor. And what we say is, uh-oh, the poor are going to take our stuff, so how about you go over there? This is insidious because we know that Jesus puts people in our pathway as kingdom people because we are the hands and feet through which he delivers his kingdom good news. And we're running the other direction. Maybe, sometimes. Is this what we do? If we view all of our money as belonging to God, which I know we say all the time but is very difficult to live out, if we view that extra money as a resource for the kingdom, then everything changes. Because then we actually get excited. The, the system is working. So I start to say as a follower of Jesus, oh, extra money is for Jesus to use. And in fact, I can probably create extra money by buying less shoes. So I'm going to create this whole pot of money that's for Jesus to use. And then when the person who doesn't have food or clothes or a place to live comes by, then we say, hooray, I have a big pot of money and I can help you. And we say, the kingdom is working. 
But the kingdom breaks down because we forgot that the pot of money is for Jesus. And so we're hoarding it and spending it on ourselves. And so when the person in need comes by, we view them as a threat and we cross over to the other side of the street. You see, the kingdom doesn't work when we don't understand what our money is for. This does not mean it's easy, however, in case you didn't notice. We really like to spend money on ourselves. And in our self-absorbed consumer world where we're surrounded by ads that tell us iPods will make us happier, giving sacrificially is always going to be hard. Someone said once, when it comes to giving until it hurts, people have a very low threshold of pain. When it comes to giving until it hurts, people have a very low threshold of pain. And I can totally relate to this. Because I know like a lot of you, on most Christmases, we include extra giving outside of our family, charitable giving. So we might give a shoebox of love that gets sent to Africa, or we might give an angel tree gift for the child of a prisoner, something like that. We might spend $10, we might spend $50, whatever. It didn't actually cost me anything because I still got all my presents and my kids still got all their presents but I just really felt good about myself. And again, it's insidious because giving an easy gift removes the pressure to give one that hurts. Now, it's true that the child who received the shoebox or the gift is blessed, and it doesn't, nothing is, diminishes that, the reality that they received a gift and they're blessed. But my truth was that I did not give sacrificially. The gift cost me nothing. I didn't give the way that Jesus calls us to give. And I think that if our giving, and not just as at Christmas, doesn't involve sacrifice, then it's not all that it could be. It seems like that there should be things that I cannot buy and vacations I cannot take and cars I will not drive and houses I cannot build because my generosity in the kingdom of God make those things impossible. It seems like there should be those things. And here's what happens to us when we begin to give sacrificially. It starts out feeling like a big pain. Oh, we whine. I'm not going to be able to go to Mexico because I helped someone. Or it's more like, I'm not going to be able to buy a pair of shoes. I sacrificed a whole pair of shoes. I do have 27 pair in my closet, but now I can't have 28. But here's what happens over time. As we begin to give, we exercise some new muscles. And it hurts at first. So to use a hokey illustration, if I do 10 push-ups right now, which I'm not going to do, but if I did, if I could, I would be very sore tomorrow. And I would, be, I would whine about it. And I would make other people carry things for me. And I would want attention about it. Oh, I did 10 push-ups yesterday. But if I did 10 push-ups every day for a month, it wouldn't hurt anymore. And I would have a new muscle. I would say to you, feel this. <laughs> And you would still think it was pathetic, but I would be happy. (laughs) Okay, hokey illustration, but this is what happens when we give sacrificially. At the beginning, we might whine, and it might be sore, and we might want everybody to notice. But after a while, we develop some new muscles, and something new is happening inside us. And so the fact that we didn't take a vacation, and we didn't get new shoes, and we didn't get to build that new house is not even on the radar. Because we're living in the kingdom of God, and this is what we do. We give all the time of ourselves sacrificially. Fourth, people who love Jesus give out of a deep place of contentment, peace, and trust in Christ. This is what we do. In Philippians 4, 5 through 7, we read, Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. These are the things that should characterize our relationship with our possessions, with money, with giving. Gentleness, thankfulness, trust in God, lack of fear, lack of worry, prayer, peace, hearts and minds that are grounded in Christ Jesus. That feels really good this time of year peace and a contentment and a trust in Christ. But let's contrast that with the 2,000 frenzied shoppers at Walmart who trampled an employee to death and continued to shove past even when paramedics were working on this young man. Since 76.5% of Americans call themselves Christians, is it possible that there were some Christians mixed into that throng? It's statistically 
absolute. And of course, we know that no one that morning was trying to kill anyone. And we all agree that it's unfortunate that it happened. But we, can we step back a little bit as kingdom people and question the underlying activity? Waiting outside a Walmart from 9 p.m. until 5 a.m. so that we can get a DVD player for 40 bucks or whatever? Is this what we do? Is this what Christmas is about? Is this what Jesus would have us do? And then you get caught up in the throng and you crush someone to death over a DVD player. But this is what we do, the crowd screams. This is what we do. And I say in the kingdom of Jesus, is this what we do? Because here's what I think we do as kingdom people. We value people over things. We find our identity in Christ. We give when it hurts. We give of ourselves. It's our holiday as followers of Jesus. And we know that it's been co-opted to feed the capitalist machine, to feed greed. And we use Jesus as the excuse to be greedy. But let's take the holiday back. Let's take a look at this video, which gives us one way that we can give back and view Christmas differently. Think about it. about 150 times to try to numb myself to the message because it just upsets me every time to say that in the name of Jesus we're spending $450 billion on crap while millions of people in the world die because they don't have water. And I wonder if Jesus was here physically right now, how he would celebrate with us Would he go to Best Buy to get happier? Or would he say, hey, there's some folks that I love over here who don't have clean water. And if we took this money instead, we could build them a well and they would live. 
And if we are his followers, then we have to ask the same question. And what I would like to see is the kingdom of God, the Jesus followers rise up and respond not just about water, but about all of the needs and hurts in the world of people who are filled with needs and people who are created in the image of God and who are suffering. $450 billion, $10 billion. In the kingdom of God, we have enough resources to make a dent. I want to end with a story today. It's always good to have a nice little story in your sermon. And as I was pondering this, the most perfect story came to mind. It has drama and interesting characters and risk and good guys and bad guys. But it was a story from my own life, and so I resisted it. So I started calling and annoying people, asking them for some stories. And I was emailing people and looking for other options and surfing the web, and then I prayed and listened, and then I surfed the web some more. And then I thought, I don't really need a story. But in the end, I felt that God wanted me to share this story with you, even though I'd rather not. And some of you have heard parts of my story about how my family decided to move from the suburbs into the city. And so in 2003, we bought a house on the east side of St. Paul. We really wanted to simplify our lives and we wanted to follow the call of Jesus to care for those in need. And we didn't know what that looked like. We just sort of moved in there. But I haven't told some of the details of what was going on in our lives at that time. We moved back here. We moved away for a few years and then we were moving back in 2003. And when we moved back from Michigan, we still owned our house there because the market sort of crashed there before anyone else, anywhere else. And so we had a house over there, and then we bought one here. And my husband, Dave, was working three days a week only in a consulting job. And I was going to seminary full-time, so I wasn't working at all. And we had to pay for my school. And since I had been the one carrying insurance, we had to do this thing called COBRA, which, as far as I can tell, means that you pay $1 million a month for each person in your family to have insurance. And then on top of it all, the company that Dave was consulting with kept not paying him. They would say, oh, we forgot. We'll pay you next Thursday. (laughs) Okay, well, we're going to forget to pay our mortgage then. (laughs) And so this kept going on and on. And so we were getting a little freaked out because we don't run up credit cards and borrow money. And so all of a sudden, the hoarding that we had been doing for a rainy day was all going away and it was starting to feel really unsafe and... I was worried about making payments and worried about where all this would end and, you know, pretty stressed out and trying to go to seminary and learn about Jesus, but not trusting him a whole lot for anything. So sort of whiny. Okay, so we move into this house and this is my state of mind and we soon met our neighbors across the alley. Dee was a single mom living there with six kids. See if I can say Ricky, Wesley, oh wait, Linnea, Ricky, Wesley, Ansea, Khalil, and Wisdom across the alley, and we got to know all these people, and we absolutely loved them. Wesley is the one who called me the happy white lady, for those of you who have heard that story. (laughs) So they moved in just a couple weeks after us. The house she had been renting had burned down the month before, and she lost everything that she had, and she didn't have any insurance on her possession. And so they moved into Dee's dad's attic, and all seven of them were living in this attic, trying to figure out what to do. So I ended up in this house behind us. But since I was wrapped up in my own problems, I was thinking mostly about that, and I had a mess on my hands, and I was stressed and worried, and I kind of wanted to rewind a few months and go back to the part where we owned one house, and I had a job, and we had our insurance paid for, and just sort of rethink the plan, maybe pray for a few more years before we did anything radical. I spent a lot of time whining and worrying. But then I started to get to know my new neighbor, Dee, and I learned more of her story. Dee didn't own a car, and she wasn't receiving child support. She had an admin job, but she was, she was about to be laid off because her department was being contracted out of state. Her rent on this falling-over house that she'd moved into was $1,300 a month, which is more than our house payment. And this is what happens in the city, is you need to be on a bus line, and you have a lot of kids, and so you need a bigger house, and you pay more to rent a house in the city usually, and it's not pretty. This house had a leaky sink, leaked into the basement, so there was mold growing down there where some of the kids were sleeping. The roof was sagging. The appliances worked off and on. The windows were so loose you could stand in front and dry your hair, 
And worst of all, she didn't have a dishwasher. I mean, hello, I'm so spoiled. Can you think of six kids and no dishwasher? It was like, something has got to be done. The landlord showed up to collect rent, but never when she called for repairs. And it was so expensive to heat this drafty house that within the first year, she fell behind and Excel turned her power off. Now, she had family who absolutely loved her, but most of them were in a similar boat, and so they weren't going to be able to help her get her head above water. So just for one half a second, I stopped whining for a minute, and I thought, wow, what is really the worst thing that could happen to us in in our situation? Because if we had come even close to losing our house or not being able to pay our bills, we had lots of family and friends who would have jumped in with anything we needed. I was trying to count how many people would, would be able to help us out. We have lots of siblings, parents, who have resources and would have helped us. We both had college degrees and could have gotten additional jobs if we needed to. Were we suffering at all, really? We were out of our comfort zone, but we were never at risk for anything horrible happening to us. And I think during this time, and I wonder if God was at work here, I'm not sure, but it might be the first time that we had to actually trust God and trust other people to make it through. Over the course of the next year, Dee had to move out of that house behind us because she wasn't able to find a job that paid as well as the one that she was making that moved out of state. She moved into another house and after less than a year had to move out of that one due to employment problems. She had nowhere to go. She was out of options. She and her family had lived in four places over two years. Now for us, we had just sold our house in Michigan. Woohoo! It only took like a year and a half. And here's where the story sort of gets weird from a kingdom perspective. Because we had just absolutely come to love Dee and her six kids. And she had come to love us. And at first we spoke very, very different languages. I think we sometimes thought the other was an alien. Because we came from such different backgrounds and such different life experiences. And we just didn't know how to understand the other. We didn't know how we view, each other viewed the world. But we kept hanging out together, and I think we grew to see through the eyes of the other. So here I am, and I have my friend Dee and our six kids, who we love about to be homeless and not making enough money to pay $1,300 to rent a house. And here's my family with two parents and two kids and two cars and now just one house and two incomes and insurance. What are we going to do? And so we shopped around with Dee and we said, hey, maybe we could buy a house and then you could rent it from us and we'd be able to work with you and make sure that you, you were stably housed and you wouldn't then be evicted when things aren't going well. And most people thought we were crazy, except our small group here who thought we were crazy but said, I think God wants you to do it. And then Dee thought we were crazy. I mean, you can imagine, just sort of, you want to do what? Who are you again? I mean, we've known her for over a year at this point, but it's still sort of odd. And so she sort of went out looking at houses with us, and I, you know, sort of looked out the corner of her eye, like, what are you people doing? I'm just not sure what's going on. So anyway, what happened was we got in this house a couple blocks from where we live, and Dee has lived in this house for three and a half years with her family. And she does pay her rent, but because we're friends and we know what's going on in each other's lives, we can be flexible and gracious about things. And here's the most amazing thing to me. And that is that when some of the kids we work with in the neighborhood don't have a place to stay because of family problems, things are going on at home, they haven't eaten, Dee is the first person to step up and say, here, I might not have a bed for you, but here's the corner of the living room. Here's some food. Even though she doesn't always have food enough to feed her own family. She doesn't have extra bedrooms. And in the kingdom, we know that Dee's sacrifice is much greater than any sacrifice I made because she gave out of her need and I give out of my plenty. But the point of the story is not to make me or Dee look good. I've spent the majority of my life spending money selfishly on myself and living in houses that were far nicer or bigger than we needed, doing token things at Christmas time to make myself feel good and feel like a generous person, and ignoring God if I felt like he was getting a little little too ASCII. 
wasted a lot of time and money. But the point of the story is to show what happens when we take some risks in following Jesus. When we take a little step of sacrifice, when we do just two push-ups. When we step out of our comfort zone and give God some space in our lives. When we have a mustard seed of faith. Dee and I both felt like God just set us up on this collision course so that two people who normally would never even meet each other ran into each other and then God used it to transform both of us. Me more than her, I think, although we argue about this a good bit. And the question of our society is, couldn't you have done other things with that money? And of course, the answer to that question is yes. We could have bought a really nice big suburban house. (laughs) We could have bought new cars, gone on vacation. We could have bought a lot of shoes. And owning a house is a pain, as we all well know. Who wouldn't rather go on vacation than buy a furnace? It's always needing stuff. Stuff breaks, needs to be fixed and replaced. But the answer to the question, couldn't you have done other things with the money, is yep, we could have. But I reject that question. Because it assumes, again, that the purpose of our money is to hoard it and spend it on ourselves. And if that's what our money is for, then I admit this was a very bad decision. And if that's what our money is for, then Dee's care for her neighbors is a super, super bad decision. And she needs to cut it out. But according to Jesus, again, that's not what our money is for. So the real question is, did you do with your money what God wanted you to do, even if it meant not being able to do other things? And the answer to that is yes. And the most awesome thing is that what started out as a lesson in sacrifice became an absolute blessing to us. We absolutely, positively never, ever think of ourselves as making a sacrifice for D. And that's the amazing thing about sacrifices. We do a few push-ups, and we grow, and we get some new muscles, and the whole landscape changes. Anything that I say to describe how all this has changed my family and me sort of sounds trite to me, and it doesn't really get to the substance, but I'll tell you a few things. That we've learned not to freak out when financial disasters happen. How we have, in fact, begun to realize that we don't have any financial disasters. How we've begun to see our money as a tool rather than a possession, which is something that Dee has known all along. How we've become so much more grateful and thankful than we used to be, which is something that Dee models for us every day. We have much to learn, and we're grateful for God's patience with us. And God is and will be patient with you as well, wherever you are as you're on this journey as a kingdom person. But right now, I feel like it's appropriate for me to introduce my good friend, Dee, to you. She's come with me today. So welcome, Dee. come to bring us the word of the Lord from Psalm 27 today. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Amen. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advanced against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. The war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. 
He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Amen. Amen. So I, what I would love is for us to continue to grow as a community that gives generously all the time of ourselves sacrificially because we have this deep trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we won't do these things just as Christmas, at Christmas. We will do them all the time because this is what we do. Let's pray. God, I thank you for my sister, Dee, who you brought into my life and uh, helped her hit me upside the head. And I pray that everyone would get to get hit upside the head uh, in your kingdom in the loving and gracious way that you do it. And I just pray that we would continue to get close enough to one another to see the need and to be willing to meet it. I pray that we would understand our resources as being things that you give us to use for the kingdom. If we're struggling with hoarding and spending, Father, confront that in our lives. Help us get, root that out with the power of your spirit, Father. Help your church to look like a group of people who care so much for those in need, whether it's right next door, whether it's those without clean water. Help us to step up, Father, because this is who you are, and this is what you call us to do, and this is what we will be. And I pray these things in the strong and transforming name of Jesus. Amen. 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 God bless you. Come front for prayer if you need it.